This is episode 13 of Cinescope, and here's Johnny. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Scott Weinberg to talk about one of our favorite films, The Shining. But first, Scott, how are you doing? I'm good, Chad. How are you? I am doing great, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, great. Thanks for inviting me. I am a film writer, film critic, film lover, film enthusiast for the last 15 so years, mostly online. Currently, I write for Nerdist. I write for a little bit for Playboy, uh, Thrillist, a few other smaller sites that are up and coming. I do a podcast with uh, my colleague Drew McWeeny called 80s All Over. And I just uh, co-produced a horror film called Found Footage 3D. So there, I plugged everything. <laughs> Great. Clearly, you are a lot more knowledgeable about movies than I am. I'm a big film fan, but you've you've been around a little bit longer. You know the 80s especially, and you know I follow you on Twitter, and you are especially adept at reviewing horror films. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say more knowledgeable, probably just more, well, definitely older and more experienced. <laughs> but, you know, I've met lots of people, uh, movie geeks half my age, who are just, you know, know as much as I do. They just don't have the actual life hours that I have behind to watch as much as I have. When you discuss art, you write about art of any kind, um, the older you get, the more perspective you have. You know, it's, uh, right. you know I, I grew up, uh, to me, when I was growing up, movies from the 40s and the 50s seemed ancient. And now, you know, I got to have the perspective. I have to be able to understand that to younger people now, movies from the 70s and 80s kind of seem ancient to them, the way, you know, film from the 40s used to feel ancient to me and um just keeping perspective is a good way to write about film like you said at the intro it's not necessarily about what's good or not good what what's more important is just celebrating the art form itself and focusing on the best things that you love exactly i think that's a great perspective to bring to the conversation um before we move on to talk about the movie I just want to remind everybody of our October 2016 giveaway, uh, where you can win a free copy of any movie we've talked about on the show, all the way up through The Shining, and uh, that does end next week at the end of the month, and we will announce it on episode 14. So stay to the end, there'll be more details about that, and in the meantime, let's talk about The Shining. Are you ready, Scott? I am. Excellent. So just a few details about the movie. It was released on May 23rd of 1980 and was directed by Stanley Kubrick, who, of course, directed Dr. Strangelove, 2001, A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, among many other great films. It was written by Kubrick and Diane Johnson based on Stephen King's original book, The Shining. The music was by Wendy Carlos, who also composed Kubrick's score for Clockwork Orange and did work on the original Tron film, and Rachel Elkind. The movie stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, Scatman Crothers, Joe Turkle, Philip Stone, and Barry Nelson. So to get us started, Scott, what's your first experience that you remember with this movie? Well, I was only six or seven when it first came out, so I, I uh, w wouldn't have seen this in theaters. My earliest recollection of watching The Shining is seeing it on network television, probably sitting at the foot of my parents' bed. I was probably... 12 or 13, a lot of your listeners might not know <laughs> that 
you know, back in the day, in, in the, uh, especially in the 1980s, network TV was, you know, one of the only real viable places to catch something once it, you know, wasn't in theaters. VHS started becoming very mainstream by 82 or 83, but even then it was a kind of a slow process. So um, when something that you were really interested in popped up on television, that was a big deal. You would make a, a can I stay up late to watch the movie and, you know, that, the, you know, the whole family night thing. And, and it was kind of a fun thing. We didn't really care when as a kid, did I care that they uh, did a pan and scan full, full screen blow up of a beautiful 178 movie? <laughs> no, no. At that point, I, did I care that it had commercial breaks? Did I care that they cut for content? No. Because I was just a 12-year-old kid watching The Shining, safe at home, and being safely scared out of my mind. So <laughs> I would say it would, it would probably be a, a, a mid to, probably an early to mid-80s network TV. I can distinctly remember watching even just the opening credits with the, with the music uh, and the helicopter shot chasing the car up the mountain. I, just, I can remember that as clear as day, watching it with my mom and my dad and my sister. And... Uh, one of the great side benefits of being a parent back then was you knew that The Shining might scare your kid, but because it was shown on ABC or NBC, the sex and, and gore and harsh language would all be gone. Right. So, you know, you kind of had parents kind of had that safety net of my mom would not have taken me to see The Shining when I was eight in 1980. But, you know, when I was 12 and it was on network television that's how i saw the exorcist that's how i saw the omen that's how i saw the shining and then the beautiful part for movie geeks of my generation is that once you saw it on television and you loved it being able to see it on vhs or on hbo was like almost like rediscovering it because it was uncut now and you could see the real version with the violence and this nudity and the sex and the bad language so you know it was almost like seeing it on network was like the appetizer and then getting to to see it uncut finally was the main course. So did you always have a positive experience with the film? Of course, you were younger, so you might not have been as discerning of a critic. But was it always a movie that you enjoyed? Or was it like the general consensus for the film it sort of grew? That's a good question, because of all the classic horror movies of my, of my childhood, I think most people would agree that The Shining is a slow burn. It, I mean, as a grown-up, it's certainly not boring, but it is deliberately paced, and it is not a high energy or high body count or high, you know, action horror film. It is very character-based and very slow in some spots, it, beautifully slow. But you would assume that maybe a 12-year-old might not have that, the, the attention span for The Shining. So I, I'm pretty sure that I was probably fitful and bored through, throughout some parts when I was a kid. Uh, but, you know, from like, I don't know, once I hit like 18 or 19, uh, you, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't lose a frame out of The Shining. I think it's <laughs> precisely as long as it needs to be. But yeah, as a kid, I would have probably gravitated more towards Friday the 13th than The Shining, solely because kids want surface level. Kids, want, kids don't know about depth or subtext or, or interesting themes underneath the surface. Kids want to see action and fun and, and kills and craziness. Right. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, maybe as a kid, The Shining, maybe I was a little bit bored here and there, but Jack Nicholson still scared the shit out of me, and um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the whole ending, the, when they slide out of the bathroom window, I love that sequence, and of course, everything in the, in the uh, hedge maze is just, it doesn't matter how old you are, that's scary as hell. Oh, definitely. Um, but yeah, so to answer your question, I think that my estimation, or my opinion of The Shining has only improved over the years. I think I like it as much now as I ever have. 
Yeah, I first saw it as a freshman in college, I believe. You know, I, I talked about last week. The Strangers was the very first horror film I saw, and I saw it as a senior in high school on Halloween. My parents were just a little bit more discerning when I was a kid, and we didn't necessarily have The Shining on ABC or NBC to sort of tame it down. Yeah, it's kind of uh, one thing that your generation, I kind of feel a little bit bad for, because growing up, if your parents knew that they were going to watch The Strangers and it was on ABC, your parents might be like, eh, worst it'll do is scare them. It's not going to show any hardcore sex. It's not going to show any nudity or gore. So, you know, it's almost having that sanitized version for kids really worked well. But it, it's interesting to, to talk to younger people who their perspective is, no, no, I could see it or I couldn't see it. That was it. <laughs> There's no PG-13 version of Hostel. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I was a freshman in college and I struggled for a minute. I couldn't remember if I read the book first or I saw the film first. And I do think I saw the film first. And, you know, that first time I walked away from the movie, I, I think I watched it in a college dorm room with friends. And so we were probably half paying attention, talking the whole time. So it wasn't the greatest first experience, but I did like it at least enough to explore the book as well. And so I read the book by Stephen King. And that's like the most terrifying thing. That's the only terrifying thing I think I've ever read. Now, the question that I'd love to ask you is, when you approach a movie like The Shining and you know that it has 30 plus years of critical and fan acclaim, do you approach the film like humbled or do you have a chip on your shoulder where you're like, oh, this better win me over? Or do you have it like, oh, if I don't love it, then there's something wrong with me. I didn't get it, you know, because uh, I'm always interested in like movies that that you're supposed to love and you watch them the first time and sometimes you're left cold. For me personally, I try to approach most things as something that I'm going to enjoy. And I, I don't try to walk into an experience overly critical and so for this one, especially, even though I didn't love it right off the bat, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was different than any horror films I had seen up to that point, because after watching The Strangers as a senior, I started exploring the genre a little bit more and branching out from there. And so The Shining was different than everything I had seen at that point. Oh, I'm so glad that there are people like you. I'm so glad <laughs> there are movie fans like you out there who came to horror late, because people who come to horror fan late in life, they're my bread and butter. They're, you're who I write for. Oh, because, great. <laughs> I mean, like the articles... The articles I write for Thrillist, if you're a serious horror fan, like old head horror fan like me, you know most of these movies, if probably all of them. So when I'm writing these articles, I'm writing them for like people like you who know movies but came to horror late in life and, and people who are just brand new to horror and aren't really sure if they like it or not but need some guideposts. Uh -huh. So you know that's interesting that you didn't really get into horror until you were in college. That to me, that, that's like... God, I couldn't imagine that. I mean, my childhood was nonstop movies, but horror was always like the special treat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the reading the book, you know, I was reading it at 2, 3 a.m. in the morning every night just for the, the full experience, I suppose. And I don't sleep much as it is. Isn't it great? It is so good. And it's, it's very different from the film uh, in a lot of ways. But I don't think that's to either medium's detriment. I think people who sort of criticize one for being different than the other miss the point. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I've i read countless, countless things about, you know, uh, whether it's an quote unquote improvement over the book or not. I think the book is one of Stephen King's best books, period. And I've read 75 percent of his novels. Uh, I would say The Shining is in his top 10. And I also think The Shining is one of the best horror films of the 1980s. So it's like, you know, in a way you could just look at them as apples and oranges. One, the book is much more serious <laughs> and the movie's a little more wacky as it goes on but i love them both i think they're both great definitely and uh so 
in the time since seeing the film for the first time and then reading the book and then continuing to see the film, I've seen it in theaters once. I'm thinking I might be seeing it in theaters here in the next week, which I'm excited for. And it's just grown and grown over time. And I've, I've said for a few years now that this is definitely my favorite film of the genre. There's just so much to sort of chew on when you watch this movie. And like you said, it's a slow burn. There are some very slow moments in this film, but it's always completely engrossing and interesting and yeah, character driven. It bothers me when people imply that slow means boring. It doesn't. Never. You know, baseball is slow. And if you like baseball, it's not boring. <laughs> right? Like the, Slow can be a good thing. It's not, you know, when I say slow, that's not any, that's not a criticism. It's clear that Kubrick wanted to take his time letting us, you know, get slightly comfortable in an icy location with off kilter, askew characters that we don't really take to, but we feel like we should. Not one of them is a warm or relatable or even really likable character, but the audience is meant to. Like, we're so conditioned that we're supposed to empathize with these people. We About halfway through the movie, we realize, I don't really like any of them, but yet I still kind of empathize with, yeah, like you said, it works on a variety of cool levels, you know, uh, whether it's, a, you know, just a story about a man going crazy, or is it a very supernatural story about projection and possession? You could take either theory works as good as the other. Yes. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about the story a little bit and various aspects of the 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 filmmaking process in this film. Um, so I just really like the setup of everything. Like at the very beginning, you get the telling of the Grady murders. And it, these are just sort of all like minor things at the time, but they eventually grow into these really big pieces of story content. So you get the telling of the, the Grady murders and, you know, Jack's like, oh, that would never happen to me. Don't worry about it. I'm completely sane. Uh, my family's going to love it up here. My wife's a certified horror film addict. Um, and so you already get this sort of twinge because everybody know this, knows this film. Everybody knows what happens. I mean, the cover of the DVD or Blu-ray that I have is Jack Nicholson sticking his head through the doorframe. So you know the direction this is going from the very beginning. It's one of the simple rules of telling a scary story is if you show someone who's confident or has hubris, that's they're going to be there down. Oh, yeah, we'll be fine up here. No, no. You know, he's very cocky and very confident that they'll be fine up there. Whereas most people might be a little nervous, but no, no, he's so desperate for the job that, oh, couldn't, but yeah, we'll be great. And, you know, that automatically, unconsciously tells the audience, oh, yeah, well, he's sure everything's going to go fine. It's not. Exactly. It's almost an arrogance kind of thing. Yeah. And you get the throwaway line from Ullman uh, about it being placed on an Indian burial ground and they sort of had to fight off Indian attacks while they were building it. And I mean, that's the only like minor thing that's ever said about it, aside from the fact that the Colorado Lounge is based on these Indian Native American motifs. Yep. It's great little breadcrumbs. You know, it's like, hmm, what else can we sprinkle in here that could explain it? It could have to do with Grady. It could have to do with the burial ground. It could have to do with a murder that happened in the hotel before. It could just be that the building itself is evil. They're just dropping all these little whatever you want to extrapolate is legit. Anything that you want to take from it is right there. It's clever screenwriting. It really is. It is. And I just love how all these they're just those little tidbits. And then eventually there are they're they're made much more of. And, you know, there are even these sort of quote unquote nothing scenes. There are two types of sort of nothing scenes in this film, I think. There's one type where they're just sort of the exploration of sound and cinematography where you have Danny rolling around on his tricycle and you have the the contrast of him rolling on the carpet versus rolling on the hardwood floor. Technically those things were called big wheels. Oh big wheels, yes. I Yeah it was a branded it was a branded toy and it was technically, yes, a tricycle. 
but it was like made of completely hard modular plastic parts. I had one when I was a kid and they were awesome big wheels. <laughs> you know, now that you say that, I think I did have one as a kid. Without question, one of my favorite sequences in the movie is what you're describing is as the sound design goes in and out and, and just wonderfully like how, how, why should that scene be so interesting? It shouldn't. It's just ch- following a kid on a, on a big wheel. Why should that be interesting? But it is. And, you know, well, it's also because of the Steadicam, which was, you know, just revolutionized and will never be used to a better effect, probably, than what Kubrick used the Steadicam for in The Shining. It's just wonderful. And, yeah, it, as, as we're chasing the kid around on the, on the bike, at first it's, oh, we're just exploring with the kid. And then the scene kind of keeps going. And you realize, where's the kid going? And then you start to wonder, are we following the kid? Are we the spirit? Are we the intruder who is now following the kid, curious? The longer the shot goes on, the more interesting it is. I agree. And there are other scenes, like there's a scene where we're zoomed in on the typewriter in the Colorado lounge and we hear this thump. And because this is a horror movie, we're, we're sort of trained to think that something is happening. And as we slowly pan out, we see that it's just Jack playing ball on the wall. Uh, yeah. So th- there's, there's those scenes where we're sort of tricked into thinking that something more is happening than is actually happening. Kubrick was a master at stuff like that, like Hitchcock would do it too. You hear like a steady rhythm of something and you'd get used to hearing it. And then your brain would say, what is that? And like you say, it's a ball bouncing against the wall or it's a newspaper flapping on a, on a, on a fence. You know, it's just you, you, you now you pull back to reveal what we're listening to. And it all comes together because it makes the audience really attentive. Stuff like that makes the audience like, well, shut up, lean in, pay attention because they want to know what, you know, what is that sound or what is that? angle supposed to mean you know uh, Kubrick was uh, just a master he was so good yes the only other thing I had mentioned right now before I let you sort of take a turn is um, there there was a scene where Jack is getting served breakfast in bed from Wendy and he has that line about when I came here for my interview it was almost as though I'd been here before and the first couple of times I saw that move this movie I don't know if I ever caught that line but it's it's it sort of sets up the whole rest of it, you know, especially the very end where you, we get the slow zoom into the, the photograph that features him from back in the 20s or the 30s. And we realize, wow, maybe he has always been here. And there's a scene in the bar with Delbert Grady. He says, you've always been uh, the caretaker. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's just the, the cyclical nature of it. And it's like, well, you don't have to understand all the logic. That's the beauty of this kind of horror movie. Is it like if you were telling me like an action movie or, or a drama, you couldn't have just vague and, and ephemeral, amorphous stuff. A horror movie lets you get, you know, be a little vague and lets audience fill in the blanks in some ways. And The Shining is really great at that, where it gives you four or five different reasons why this violence is going to happen. And it lets you decide which one or all or, or some, which theory works. And then they only give you like 75%. Like you said about the Indian burial ground, we only get a tiny little piece of that, but it's still there in the back of your head. The idea that there could be, you know, like an octopus and each arm is a different reason of why Jack does what he does. Yeah, it's just a fascinating story. One thing that Drew and I discussed uh, about The Shining when we did the episode for 80s All Over and Drew nailed this and I totally agree. And I'll ask you this. The one thing, what's the one thing in this film that proves something supernatural is going on uh the thing that i that immediately comes to my mind is when jack is locked in the pantry yep. and delbert grady is on the outside yeah the, the simple question is how does jack get out of that pantry 
He's locked in. The kid didn't let him out. Wendy didn't let him out. It literally is like that. What some people in, in a lesser film, I suppose you'd call it a plot hole. But it's not because Kubrick doesn't do plot holes. That's, that's why <laughs> he was the most fastidious filmmaker of all time. He doesn't do plot holes. He, you can criticize other things about Kubrick, and, and I'll accept some of them, but not that he would allow a plot hole to go in one of his movies. So the fact that he's let out of the pantry by someone or something, and they never explain it, almost, I wouldn't say definitely, but in a way, proves the supernatural nature of the hotel. It's almost like the, if I may, the oh snap moment of the whole movie. It's like, oh, wow, there is something mm -hmm. actually beyond hallucination going on here. And a filmmaker nowadays would never do that. He'd have eight producers saying uh, everybody in the test screening wanted to know how he got out of the pantry. We need a shot of the kid walking towards the pantry or we need a shot of smoke wa wafting down and unlocking the pantry door. We need something to explain how he got out. And Kubrick is just like, nope, nope, <laughs> nope, nope, you, you figure it out. <laughs> but I'm impressed, Chad. I'm impressed that you got that on the first try. That's really good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, are there any aspects of the story that you specifically wanted to talk about or just the, the filmmaking in this film? Anything in particular? Well, again, you know, you could talk for hours just about the cinematography. The production design is just un unbelievable. I mean, every shot, you could take a still of any shot, of any frame in this movie, and I'd put it on my wall uh, as a poster. It's just beautiful to look at. One thing I've always, people have always debated in, in some ways is, like I mentioned earlier, are they supposed to be at all likable or relatable? Or is this family supposed to be like almost the worst case scenario of the nuclear family? Because Wendy, uh, you know, you can't help but empathize, but she doesn't make it easy. She's not very warm. She's not very sweet. She's not very brave. You know, she doesn't make it easy for you to like her. I don't really like Wendy. I, I feel empathy, but I don't feel sympathy, if that makes sense. Yeah. Danny is off-putting and strange. And you, you kind of, of course, you empathize with him because he's a little boy. But he's not cute or lovable. He's creepy. You know, <laughs> and even Jack is just, he's hardly, he never, he's rarely that charming Jack. In this, he's either a, like the bullshit artist Jack or the manic, angry Jack. And he's very rarely the charming Jack. And I think that's on purpose. So my question to you is, are we supposed to care about these characters? Are we supposed to like any of them? I don't think it's necessary to like them. I think it's just there are people who have been put in this situation. We get to watch how they react to it and uh, where it goes from there. And it's interesting for that reason, even if I don't particularly like Jack in this film, uh, because he is sort of a douchebag. I mean, he he's just an interesting character because you get to see his slow descent into madness over the course of the film. And you get to see how Danny slash Tony react to seeing these fantastic, terrifying scenes that have happened in the past. And you get to see how Wendy is just trying to do what's best for her son, and she's trying to avoid the wrath of her husband and just trying to make the best of a very poor situation. Yeah, they're all just very fractured people, the kid, the mom and the father that I think that's maybe more to the point is that they're all three of them are already way screwed up. This is not a warm, loving, affectionate family. No, even in the car ride on the way up the mountain, uh, the first time yeah. there there's they're brittle strained conversation. They're, they're, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's an interesting dynamic because like you said, just being human beings, 
we empathize with their situation. They don't have to be likable to, you know, be able to relate. So, you know, but in most horror movies of this sort, the goal, one of the goals would be make them likable so that the scares are scarier because we don't want them to die. We don't want them to get eaten or chopped up or whatever it may be. Uh, but in this movie, he almost challenges you. Kubrick and Diane Johnson, they almost challenge you to like them. Like, do you like them? And again, that, that, that kind of unexpected nature of the, of the family in that they're not, in most movies, he'd be a, a potential psycho. The mother would be adorable and, and warm and sweet. And the kid would be also lovable, but a little bit weird because of the whole Red Rom thing. But they're also offbeat and, and intense. You know, it, it adds another layer to the uh, premise. Also, love, talk, I want to ask you, talk a bit about the, uh, the idea of isolation. Because as a kid, that's what scared me the most about this movie is like, whoa, they're actually in a location where if she chopped her arm off by accident, she, like, that's it. You're dead. You can't get away. You are completely cut off from the rest of the world. I mean, because I'll give you my, my perspective is some of my all-time favorite horror films, like Alien, and the thing also have this theme of alien. It's a haunted house, but you literally can't run out the house because you're in a spaceship. You know, the thing is a monster movie where you're in four buildings and you can't run outside because you'll freeze to death. And the shining is kind of the same thing. You can't just get out and run because you're on the mid top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. The You know, the isolation makes it a lot creepier. Right. The fact that they don't have help and the, the, the best help that Wendy and Danny have is Scatman Crothers character who lives all the way down in Miami. And the only way he knows is because he can shine, too. Yeah. And so there's there's that aspect where the phones are dead. They're by themselves. They don't have any form of transportation, as we find out towards the end of the film. And yeah, they don't they don't have any help. And I think that the way that Kubrick uses the title cards in this film as well uh, really sort of emphasizes that isolation. As soon as we say goodbye to Ullman it says one month later and they're, they're yeah. by themselves already. And there's the, the parking lot, which was relatively full at the beginning of the film is completely empty except for their little yellow VW. And the only form of contact because of the weather is the radio. And the idea that, like I said, we see before we see any of the supernatural stuff uh, that's much later in the film. We see uh -huh. Jack sort of reacting to his situation alone. We have this scene where he just explodes at Wendy for interrupting him. And I mean, we've seen some of the tension between them before, but that was the first time he like reacted so heavily. And then short time later, while Danny and Wendy are exploring the maze, you have Jack just sort of sitting there staring out into emptiness and he looks deranged. And there's really not any explanation for that either, except he's just, completely going bonkers because he's by himself yeah i always took that as you know just just a little touch on how kids feel and react when their parents are fighting you know like he was getting the, the psychic energy of his parents fighting and and that's partially what you know exacerbates his problem is that his parents hate each other and he's stuck in the middle and i, I think like you know as a kid i'm sure you heard your parents fighting more than once or twice and you always like want to put your pillow over your head and not not hear it and right. I, I think it kind of works. I think it kind of works on that level. And to the Scatman Crothers thing, he's not only is he a wonderfully underrated and lovable actor, always grew, growing up, I only knew Scatman Crothers as like an old character actor. He was in a lot of movies, did a lot of cartoon voices, just a great voice, great face, lovable. Mm -hmm. I love him in this film. Yeah, great character actor. And to have such a, an adorable person play Dick Halloran and, and the, 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 just think of the chat, the, the, arc 
that his character takes in this film. He starts out at the beginning. He relates to the kid. We automatically love him because he's trying to help a troubled kid. Then he's on his vacation, relaxing in his house. And he gets the idea that something terrible is going to happen. So his, if you look at The Shining just from Dick Halloran's story, it's just a long, boring road trip going from Florida to Colorado. And just very dull, very boring, very uneventful. And what does he get for it? One of the scariest death scenes that I ever experienced as a kid. Just <laughs> horrifying. And when you start to realize, like, that's some Hitchcock stuff there. We were watching his subplot five, six times cut into the main story. And we're watching his subplot and we're watching it and we're watching it. So he's tricking the audience. He's telling the audience this character is important. He's going to do something. He's going to have a, a major bearing on what happens in Act 3. Otherwise, why would we keep cutting back to him? Right. And then the misdirect is, nope, noble, heroic, sweet character. But now he just exists to scare the shit out of you. um i was wondering last night for the first time you know i was wondering what did dick see when he was shining you know there's that moment where it pans zooms into his face and he has this look of absolute terror i was wondering if he was if he maybe witnessed something uh if if so what did he witness or if it was maybe just an incredible feeling of dread that he knew was connected to the hotel somehow and so he acted on it. it it's something that hadn't occurred to me before but i was just curious do you maybe have any thoughts what he sort of experienced that instigated such a strong reaction yeah i'd hate to say it but i would have to see the scenes that immediately precede that moment i know the exact frame you're talking about but i I would have to recall the moment right before it because there must have been some inciting point you know and and Uh kudos to kubrick for not say not showing exactly what he saw maybe he saw the bloody elevator maybe he saw uh, you know, uh, him chopping down the door. Maybe he saw the future. Maybe he just got that the kid was horrified. You know, like, it's not important. What's important is it scared him enough to get him on the road in horrible weather to go back up the mountain to save a kid he doesn't, you know, to save a family he doesn't even know, really. Right, it's a real testament to his character and his yeah, nature as a person. fascinating subplot. I, it breaks my heart when he gets killed. But to look, you know, to follow just that character's arc throughout the movie is just really interesting to me. Definitely. Let's talk about more characters. So let's just talk real in depth about Jack for a minute. Mm-hmm. This and Jack Nicholson in One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest really sort of cemented in my mind that he's an absolutely fantastic actor. Um, because at, at, up to this point, I hadn't seen a whole lot of Jack Nicholson films. And man, he just gives an incredible performance. I mean, he always gives an incredible performance. But in this movie, you just see this wide range of emotion. There's this tension that he has with Wendy that you see from the very beginning in the car. And the way he reacts to Danny, who's asking questions from the back seat. It's just very interesting watching him react to the situation and how extreme he can be in one direction or the other. Yeah, a lot of people... I'll tell you, uh, one of the biggest joys of being a movie geek throughout my particular years has been watching Jack Nicholson. Uh, I mean, just throughout the years, most of his stuff that I would see from like the 70s on, it's just, you know, I've seen movies that I had no interest in. Uh, Ironweed (laughs) with Meryl Streep, like just the stuff that I would have no interest in and I would buy, uh, rent it or go see it just because Jack Nicholson was in it. And some, some, well, very few people would criticize him as an actor. Some people have criticized his performance in The Shining as being manic at nine, and then he goes to ten, and that's about it. I don't 
I don't fully agree with that. I think there's a lot of subtlety, particularly early on in the film, where if you realize that if you watch The Shining and you realize from the first frame that you're watching a man who is trying to not go insane, who is about to lose his mind out of desperation and boredom and misery, he's on the cusp of losing his mind. And boy, does he take the wrong job. <laughs> yeah, I, Jack Nicholson's performance is wildly entertaining, you know, forget your level of over the top or manic or whatever. It's just fun. He's fun to watch. He's fun when he's being mean. He's fun when he's being sarcastic. He's fun when he's being petty. You know, when he's confused in the bar uh, with the bartender, when he's confused and, and slightly sympathetic, he's just fascinating. I, I don't know if I'd ever even want to make a list of like the top 10 Nicholson performances because <laughs> that would just be like naming your favorite children, whatever, or naming it to be impossible. I would probably put The Shining in his most iconic or memorable, but he's definitely done more subtle, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking to one of his lines of subtlety, it, that, that first time they go into the gold room and he says, uh, uh, yeah, we don't drink. You can just sort of hear the disdain in his voice as he he's confessing to the fact that, you know, yeah, I guess it's a good thing there's not alcohol here because I would definitely be taking advantage of it if it was. And you can hear that in just in the simple way he says that. Also, think of this. Think of, you know, iconic actors who can just make an audience laugh or cheer with a facial expression. He does some stuff with his eyebrows and his grin in that bar with, with Grady. It's just, he just knows his arsenal. You know what I mean? Like, he's a musician who knows his instrument. And his face and his voice are his instruments. And he's just one of the best I've ever seen. He's just one of the most iconic, entertaining. I think part of the appeal of Nicholson is that he, in many cases, he is a little bit wired. Like you think of his most memorable performances, most people will think of even recently The Departed, you go back to Batman. People love the ones where he's a little bit wacky. But if you look back over his career, like Terms of Endearment, he's so beautiful in Terms of Endearment. His understated stuff doesn't get enough credit. Uh, but then we're talking about The Shining, which might be his most manic performance ever. So, uh, you know, if you, wanna, if you wanted to do like a sedate to manic level of, of, <laughs> of um, Nicholson, you'd probably put The Shining near the very top with like anger management or Mars Attacks. But the guy, I mean, you could just watch 30 Nicholson films at random and just see some great stuff. He's just the best. Right. I mean, in the climactic scene at the bathroom in this film, he starts quoting three little pigs and he's he's quoting johnny carson and all these out there things uh that that don't really make sense in the moment but hey why not he's he's in the moment he's manic he's crazy and uh it led to probably the most iconic line in the entire film yeah it is you know i wonder too if do younger viewers remember or get the reference of every night the tonight show was the long here's johnny like that was the that was and, you know, you don't need to know that reference to get that he's lost his mind. But I'm wondering if younger uh, viewers really even get that reference anymore. <laughs> right. It's similar within The Goonies. You know, you have uh, Sloth who says, hey, you guys, that's the electric company, right? Yep. But it's always associated with The Goonies. Yeah, exactly. But there, you're much younger than me and you get, you remember electric companies, as do I. So, you know, I think some things are just, however old you are, you pick them up by, uh, what's up, Doc? You know, like I watched Bugs Bunny cartoons as a kid nonstop. I bet you probably saw them mixed in with hundreds of different cartoons, but everybody knows what's up, Doc. You don't need to be 40 to understand like these iconic uh, catchphrases and whatnot. Um, but yeah, 
the beautiful thing of it is you don't need to get it. You know, if you, here's Johnny indicates that he's lost his shit. <laughs> Whether you understand that it's a reference to the Johnny Carson Tonight Show, doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, you still get it. Right. Yeah, and the last thing I really had to say about Jack was um, it's awesome the transformation he sort of has when at the end of the film, he's limping, he's sort of hunched over, he's carrying the axe, he's hoarse from screaming so much, and he, he's just this completely different character from the sort of put-together, or at least mostly put-together person we saw at the beginning of the film. And at the end, very end, when he's sitting in the maze, he's got his hands in his jacket trying to keep out the cold, and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs at the snowcat engine that he just heard start, and he knows that his wife and son are leaving him. And it's just, wow, that, what a transformation in character. Yeah, what what's great about that whole sequence is, well, A, Danny turns out to be a lot smarter than we thought. That whole backtracking over his footsteps was very clever. Very yes. clever. And secondly, he goes from, he's hard, he's like a monster. He's hard, Like you said, he's hunched over, he looks like he has one arm, he's limping, he's shrieking. He's like a troll, right, chasing a child through a maze. And yet, I feel, you can't help but feel bad for him. Like, I still have empathy for that guy. I mean... It's not his fault he went insane. Whether he went mentally insane or if the hotel or a ghost made him insane, none of that is his fault. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, you, oh, you pity. Uh, maybe empathy is not the right word. Pity is the right word. I feel pity for him as he, he's screaming and he sinks down and he freezes. You know, you, it's tragic. It you is. Know? Like, you know, he didn't deserve that. He was, a, he was a flawed guy, but he wasn't a bad guy. Well... Kind of, maybe he was. <laughs> he was put in the situation where no matter what, things were going to go south for him. Right, and it also raises an interesting question of how much bad stuff does somebody have to do before we stop feeling bad? Because we hear stories about how he grabbed Danny by the arm and hurt him when he was a baby, and he, he has drinking problems, and he clearly has anger issues. So it, like, the movie almost says, like, why do you feel for this guy? You shouldn't. If you think about it, he's kind of an asshole. Yeah, so moving on a little bit, let's talk about Danny slash Tony. Um, I think this is an outstanding performance from a child actor. I don't know if it's true. You might be able to shed some light on this, but I've read that Danny Lloyd had no idea that he was in a horror film. Is that true? You know, I've read the same thing. How old is he in the movie? Five or six? Yeah, something like that. I can't remember g going on a vacation from when I was like six. You know, very, very vague recollections of that age. So yeah, I believe him when he, if he said that, I definitely believe it's true. Because it's like, he doesn't really see, the kid is not really involved in the most horrific moments, you know, on screen. Like, he's running through a maze might be the scariest stuff he has to deal with in the movie. Yeah, I believe that. Cool. Uh, I mean, I think there's some really interesting sort of subtle acting, even from him as a kid. Absolutely. Um, which is what, what impresses me. There's especially this one scene where he's acting as both Danny and as Tony. And he does the Danny voice, and he's looking kind of terrified in the moment. And then he does the Tony voice, and his face changes a little bit. And he looks a little bit more, not menacing, but a little bit more stern, uh, as he if he is a different character. And then when he goes back to Danny, he's back to that scared innocent child face again and for for a, an actor that young to pull off something so subtle i was very impressed yeah he's a great great young actor or you know in the one film at least you know as well as i do that especially in a movie a horror movie like this if your kid actor is not good you're in trouble you know right. like a kid actor can ruin a scene and three bad scenes can ruin a movie <laughs> <laughs> so uh the fact that he is so like you guys said, he is kind of cloying and off-putting and a little bit creepy, but that's a testament to the kid's performance, too. Like, 
Right. Mm. The character's supposed to it be It would have been easier from the, for Kubrick to be like, ah, oh, smile in this scene and be a little sweet and sing a song and be upbeat, you know, dance a little. And no, the kid is supposed to be tortured and moody and, and fractured, you know? So yeah, I, it's a great performance from a young actor. I, who knows the kid could have gone on to do much bigger things, but uh, he, he just wasn't interested in staying an actor. So God bless him. Yeah. The, the red rum scene though is one of the three best scenes in the film, I would say oh, yeah. where, I mean, this super unnerving voice as he grabs a knife and he traces his finger down the edge of the blade. And then he picks up the lipstick and he he's, we'd only gotten a glimpse of the door in like one of Tony's visions up to this point. And so watching as he's slowly writing each letter on the door and, there's a letter that's backwards. And then as he finishes, he gets more and more intense with his iteration of just saying red rum, red rum. And then uh, when Wendy wakes up and he's standing there holding the knife in one hand and the lipstick in the other, and she grabs him. And then we see the reflection in the mirror. It's just, wow. That's one of the best scenes in the film. And it wouldn't have been able to work so well if he hadn't been such a solid, it hadn't been such a solid performance from him. Yeah. And, and it also leans into the whole idea of Kubrick is antagonizing his audience in that scene. Because everybody knows that when you hear like the voice, the first couple of times you're like, what's he saying? And then it, you're just like, okay, stop. And then your brain says, ugh, that's getting annoying. <laughs> and then your brain says, what the hell? <laughs> and then your brain says, kid, shut up. You know, but you're in the grasp of a filmmaker who knows that he is trying to annoy and then unnerve you and suck you into what the kid is dealing with. It's a confrontational kind of filmmaking and it works great. I don't know. If, if I would enjoy it from other filmmakers, but Kubrick was not interested in making a passive horror film. He was making one that would get under your skin in many different ways. Right. And then as soon as that, that sequence is over and the mirror reveals that it says murder, we get the first hit of the axe as Jack starts breaking down the door. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a great moment. Yeah, it's a great transition into the real meat of the film as far as the action and the, the, the terror we already talked about Dick a little bit uh, and how great a character he is, how likable he is. And I, I just love that beginning sort of monologue from him as he explains Shining and his connection with his grandmother and how they were able to hold a conversation without ever opening their mouths. And he, he's just from the moment he's on the screen, he's he's got this charm about him. And it's hard to not like Dick and feel really bad for him whenever he walks in and first thing he's dead. Yeah, it's one of the most interesting subplots or or one of the most interesting themes in the whole movie is that the character we instantly liked the most, without question, he's the most likable character in the movie by a country mile. Right. Um, and then to have him, his, his long trek back to the hotel, and that way, with just a horrible, shocking jump scare, you know, a wonderfully effective job, you know, because at that point, you're like, oh, he was the, like, the actual humanity. He was the actual, like, potential savior, and he died almost instantly. Like that kind of says something to the audience right there is like, you know, he was he was like your beacon. You were holding on to him as the one hope for this family. And he was destroyed pretty quickly. It's almost a dark joke if you think about it. You know, like it's a hero putting on all his I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to get on a plane. I'm going to get the snow cat. I'm going to put on my coat. and I'm going to go save everybody. And then he gets shot in the head. <laughs> in a way, it's almost a very dark joke. And. You know, that horror, obviously, horror and comedy are, you know, very close cousins. So, Right. What about Wendy? We, we spoke sort of briefly about her, but what would you say about Wendy in this movie? Oh, she's just a fascinating character. It's fascinating for so many reasons. She's not in any way what you'd call like traditionally beautiful. Okay. So I hate to, you know, Shelley Duvall, of course, 
is and was a beautiful woman. But Wendy is not. She's made. To, she's played to look brittle and played to look haggard and worn out. So, so right off the bat, she's not what you'd call like your traditional leading lady in a horror movie, where you'd have her be attractive to some degree and you'd have her be very warm and sweet. She's obviously a you know Wendy's a good mother clearly, but she's not what you'd call particularly warm or loving. And uh, it's just a fascinating character because you start to wonder, not only do you wonder what did she see in this man, but you definitely start to wonder what did he ever see in her? Like, I don't really see why they fell in love. Like neither of them are all that attractive to one another. Now it's really difficult. That's a tough thing for an actress to pull off is, Oh, you're not going to be particularly pretty and you're not going to be particularly likable. And you're going to be, you know, the audience is going to be annoyed with you from time to time. You know, that's not easy. And Shelley Duvall is great, great in this movie. Whereas Jack is very over the top and very in your face. Her performance is really subtle, is very internal and heartbreaking because she is such a plain Jane, unhappy woman. And we empathize with her, even if we don't really like her all that much. You really like Wendy? I don't. <laughs> no, not in particular. But you're, you're right. There is a lot of subtlety. I certainly don't want to see her get chopped up with an axe. But like the fact that she's not traditionally likable is really interesting. I would have loved to have seen Shelley Duvall get nominated for this movie. I think it's one of her best performances ever. And I've always liked Shelley Duvall, even though she nails what Kubrick wanted, which is kind of a, kind of a freaky woman <laughs> who's hard <laughs> to love. But yet we still root for her to rescue her kid and get out. Uh, I, I think she's I think she's a fantastic actor. Yes. And one of her most satisfying scenes is as she's being sort of chased down by Jack in the Colorado room after she's approached him to take Danny to the hospital and she's wielding the bat and sort of haphazardly. She doesn't really clearly know what she's doing with it. She doesn't really know if she's going to commit to using it against her husband should it come to that. And that slow crawl up the staircase as she's walking backwards and sort of stumbling over herself and Jack's And you can like, her. see the interplay between the two of them. It like As he first starts up the steps, he seems mildly threatening. And it seems like every time she swings at him, he gets slightly angrier. And by the time they're halfway up, he's gritting his teeth and really grimacing at her. It's kind of like he was already unhinged and her aggression is making him angrier. And, you know, it really is a fascinating look at, you know, perspective on, you know, domestic violence and what they would have called in 1980, I guess, wife beating, whatever. I mean, you, he clearly has some point had raised his hand to her or threatened to because she's cowed. She's afraid of him. Well, and this is shortly after the scene where Jack's been talking with Delbert Grady, who says he needs to correct his wife and his son. Um, so clearly he's coming after her with malicious intent after that conversation. And uh, she's starting to realize that he, he is coming to harm her. And that moment where the, the bat finally connects with him in the head and he tumbles backwards on the staircase is a really satisfying moment in the moment. Yeah, and it's also, it's a, it's a fascinating moment because you know this isn't like that kind of horror movie where you go, yeah, you're still not even remotely relieved because you know it's a minor bump, he's going to get up and he's probably going to be, you know, well, he's definitely going to be even angrier. It's not definitely, it's not going to be like a, oh, he suddenly jumps up like Jason, he's going to get up like a normal person and be even angrier. And yeah, that makes him scary. Definitely. Now, moving on, uh, just real quick, I just wanted to briefly mention both Grady and Lloyd. I think Joe Turkle as 
uh, Lloyd is just a fun character. I, I like Joe Turkle both in this. I liked him in Blade Runner. He's just a, a good character actor. Yep, he, great he's, character actor. He's another one of the likable characters in the film. I would say that Dick and Lloyd are the two most likable characters here. Although Lloyd's role is much more downplayed. He's just a good foil for Jack sort of to monologue against and react to. Yeah, he's very, uh, very stoic. From a guy like Joe Turkle, you get a lot just in the eyes. Mm-hmm. You don't need a lot of back and forth. But yeah, he is. He's a very good foil. And then uh, Barry Nelson as Stuart Ullman is really interesting to me because, you know, at first he seems like officious and kind of a jerk. And then you're the more I get from Ullman is that he just wants to get the hell out of there. Yeah. He doesn't really care who the caretaker is because once he gets the caretaker, his 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 liability is gone for six months. So I'm getting the impression that he's grateful to have Jack there. He's glad that, that Jack Tarrant showed up. <laughs> right. Maybe he's a little unnerved by the place as well and is happy to clear out for a few months. Yep. Well, cool. Let's talk about the music just a little bit. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say about it. You might have more to say, though. First off, I I just love that opening sequence as we're climbing up the mountain with Jack and his VW. And it's like the sort of iteration of the DSERA theme. And it's just just low and menacing. And you're slowly climbing higher and higher up the mountain up to the hotel. And we get these wide panning shots. And it's just a great setup for the film as you're you're embarking on this journey. And you know that it's not going to be a necessarily happy one just from the way the music sort of sets up the scene. Yeah, I I love most, you know, iconic horror themes. uh, And and this one, it doesn't really this film doesn't really have that kind of a, you know, like a psycho or Jaws or Friday the 13th theme. but that opening music like you said it was uh, wendy carlos and it's just it defines ominous i mean like that's the word ominous you just right. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like you what that's, a, <laughs> that's not a beat like that tells you there's a monster coming come on and the, the way it, it, it just complements the the climb up the mountain it's just beautiful and yeah i think i mean kubrick mostly employs classical music throughout the movie um but yeah that opening theme will always haunt my dreams because you know you might not always finish a movie that you started but so i've probably seen the beginning of the shining i've seen the film itself you know six or eight times but i've probably seen the beginning 20 times (laughs) (laughs) you know so you know i know that opening sequence and it always bugs me that you could see the helicopter's shadow in a couple shots oh really yeah yeah if you watch the if you watch it obviously in in widescreen yeah i think i believe it's on the bottom right uh, but a few times you can see the helicopter's shadow. And, you know, obviously in 1980, there was no way to really shade that out. And I, I'm sure it drove Kubrick crazy that he couldn't get rid of that. Because <laughs> he, would have, he probably wouldn't use CG much, but he, he would have used CGI on that. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the classical music. That's most of the music in this film. I think it's all used to great effect. I mean, no no wonder, of course, it's Kubrick and it's it's going to be used to great effect. But then there's this one other sort of recurring theme that I think is sort of like a foreshadowing theme where you get this. It's almost like it's not theremin, I don't think, um, but it's theremin-esque where it's really like surreal and ethereal sounding. Yeah. Um, and you get this this sort of rolling timpani up and down. You get it really at the you get it during the uh, when the woman gets out of the tub. Right. I believe. And uh, part of one of the uh, I think the initial elevator scene gets used for the high intensity horror moment. Yes. And then once we get to the bathroom scene and onward, it's just like this frenetic string nightmare where there's there's this all this pizzicato and this like screeching and scratching and noise. Yeah. Musical noise. Yep. Right. And it, it it's just used very well. I mean, like I said, I don't have a lot to say about it, except it's just used extremely effectively. Yeah. I'm no, I'm no music expert, but I, I know that, you know, a lot of times uh, 
it works in that unconscious way. Right. And I believe that Shining, you know, the Jaws theme sticks out. You know, most of the score is brilliant. That whole Jaws score is brilliant. But the Psycho, that theme jumps out. Uh, I think that in the case of The Shining, the score for the most part is subtle. It does not supposed to stand out and, and really uh, take the front part of your brain. I think it's supposed to be there in the periphery. And it's never like straight up classical music that like the kind that you find really listenable. It's always sort of the always uncomfortable, eerie, uh, this is different kind of classical music that is used here. And it's used to great effect because of that. Yeah. Anyways, let's talk about the the sort of the themes or the, the relevance of this movie. Like, what are the takeaways is what we like to talk about. Anything you'd like to say? Well, mental health is very important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People who are on the edge of the abyss probably shouldn't edge any closer. I think it's a movie about the, there's so many interesting themes that you could unpack. And I don't even mean like the wild, insane theories from Room 237. I mean, you know, just the idea of like the fear of being an unfit parent. Like that, that's, I'm not, I am not a parent. Um, but I, I always thought that was an interesting theme of, you love your kid, obviously, but what if you're not that good at being a father? You know, just loving your kid is not enough to just instantly be a good father. Like, that is a real, I'm sure, to every new father, that is a horrible fear. And the guilt of accidentally breaking your kid's arm. Could you imagine that? You know, you could know in your heart of hearts that you didn't mean to hurt the kid, but you still did it. How do you pack that away? The guilt of something like that. Uh, or maybe, for Wendy's perspective, the guilt of allowing it to happen. Or of not being stronger a lot of interesting things in the family dynamic. Yeah. You know, something that Ebert talked about in his review was uh, the the case of the unreliable observer. And we don't really know as a film viewer who to trust and what story to believe. And is it the six-year-old boy who's riding around on his tricycle and seeing ghosts? Is it Jack who's clearly losing his mind? Is it Wendy? Or, yeah, or is it that fourth party that on the, the, the spirit, for lack of a better word, the fourth character who's maybe observing them all and we're watching what they're observing. Right. Maybe we're watching the ghosts. If there's a ghost, maybe we're watching the ghost's perspective on these intruders in their hotel. They're just watching them. Uh-huh. Right. Maybe the ghosts aren't even causing it. There may be the ghosts are just observing it. You know, obviously a big theme in the book that was slightly uh, augmented, but still prevalent in the, in the film is the case of, you know, alcoholism and just, you know, the fear of, of becoming an alcoholic, you know, or the fear of falling off the wagon and letting your family down. The guilt of, again, you know, hurting your child, presumably while he was drunk. And I know that the alcoholism theme was a lot more prevalent in the book than it is in the film, but it's clearly there. It's right there, especially in the, the bar sequences. But there's a big theme that you could take away as well. Yeah. And there's so many classic scenes that have come from this film and sort of permeate film culture today. I mean, you've got Pixar films with the carpet from the the hotel and you've got yeah. Finding Nemo quoting it. Here's Brucey. And I mean, that, that's just one example because Lee Unkrich is a shining freak. Those are just a couple of examples. There are so many films that reference this or other media that reference this film just because it there's so many classic scenes like Red Rum. There's the carpet. There's Here's Johnny. There's the scene with Lloyd in the bar. It's just a classic piece of cinema that even I think regardless whether you've seen the film or not, you're probably familiar with a lot of aspects of it. Yeah. And that's what happens when a film is, you know, is, is that I keep using the word, but iconic and loved and, you know, it becomes immortal. So, you know, there's six, seven, all, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That's been oh, that one too. satirized, you know, dozens and dozens of times over the years. 
yeah, I mean, when you make a film that people of my generation saw four or five times growing up, and then you find, you know, younger uh, movie nuts like you say, wow, you know, this is one of the most highly regarded horror films of all time. We got to really sit down and watch it. And then maybe you don't love it the first time, but of course, one time is not always enough. And then you slowly grow a real appreciation for it. Now you can take out The Shining and put in any 100 or two, 500 other titles. You know, we could be talking about Psycho or Night of the Living Dead or Alien. And I, I think we've already talked about this just a little bit, but just to revisit it real quick. It's a horror movie that's not afraid to focus more on the characters and on the scares. Yes, it has its very scary scenes in this movie, but a lot of it is just like watching these people under this stress and react to each other and deal with this stress and wow i mean there's so much going on even in the slow moments that you can latch on to it's different as a horror film in that respect yeah well only a guy like well not only but few filmmakers like kubrick could just say look oh you got notes where you want me to have more horror in act one well no i'm not doing that uh <laughs> you want you know oh more notes where i should add like two extra characters who come up to, to rob the hotel and they get killed yeah i'm not, not going to do that you know like <laughs> he's kubrick was a fierce individual and he was going to make the movie he wanted to make so it is a non in in some ways it's a traditional haunted house movie in some ways if you want to look at it, it it's a haunted hotel obviously but it still fits the template of an old school haunted house movie but it also works on a very interesting variety of levels about an indictment of the nuclear family or or an analysis of what you know addiction can do to a family or just the idea of avoiding places at certain points in your life this is a bad job for him at that time. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like a theme of like, as you're trying to improve life, you could just take the wrong step and make it 10 times worse, which is bleak, but it's pretty scary. Yeah. And the haunted house aspect rings sort of especially true at the end of the film when Wendy's wandering around by herself searching for Danny and she walks into one of the ballrooms and there's cobwebs and skeletons everywhere. And she walks into another room and there's this uh, sexual act going on on the bed. And that's the, the moment where it's just sort of like full on haunted house. Yeah. And she's seeing all these crazy things that we hadn't seen up to that point. So yeah, that, that's a, a good comparison there. Do you have any final thoughts on the movie? Just that if you're a horror fan and you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in many years, you should give it another look or, or give it a rent because you want to be when people talk about the, the classic horror films, you want to be well versed. You want to be able to join the conversation and have, have an opinion and also just to appreciate a great piece of art. <laughs> but, yeah, if you haven't seen this film in what, what would you say, five years, ten, six? I mean, I think even two or three years, depending on how much attention you paid it. It's definitely a film that deserves rewatching. It's an interesting puzzle box of a horror movie, but it doesn't really have one definitive answer. So if you, if ambiguity bothers you, this might not be your horror movie, but if you want some, if you want it, a smart horror movie that lets you fill in your own blanks, I think it's one of the greats. Yes. And I, I would mention that if you're interested in the movie and you like the movie, I would definitely recommend reading the book as well, because even if they aren't wholly similar, they do explore some of the same themes. And uh, I love how reading a book can give you further glimpses into the mind of a character that you don't necessarily get in the film. Even if it's not explored the same way, it can help you look at it differently. Yeah. I think a lot of times changes are good. Because like, if you've seen The Shining and you really like it, then you're in for another good experience when you read the book. Because it's very different in many ways. Obviously, it has the same structure and the same characters, but a lot of it is different. So now you're not just reading a book that is identical to a movie. You're getting a new experience. You know, you're getting new, new subplots and new themes. 
Right. And actually, an advantage of the book is uh, Stephen King just released a sequel a couple years ago called Dr. Sleep that features a grown-up Danny, and I actually really enjoyed it. So Yeah, I did as well. Well, cool. That's basically all I have to say. Anything else you wanted to throw in, or are we finished? Nope. No, we're all good. Happy Halloween. Definitely. That is the end of the official 13th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for being on the show, Scott. I, I definitely appreciated your uh, seasoned perspective. Oh, man. Thanks very much. Had a good time. And yeah, again, if you haven't seen it in a while, definitely put The Shining in your hollow, in your October uh, movie rotation. Yes, I watch it every year on Halloween. So I'll at least be watching it once or twice more before the year runs out. Now, contact for the show. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please remember to rate and review on iTunes and also email feedback and ideas. And if you're interested in co-hosting, you can send that to the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. Now, one more reminder, this is the last week of the October 2016 giveaway. Leave a review to be entered to win a free copy of any movie talked about on the podcast through October in any format you want, in digital, DVD, or Blu-ray. And if you take a picture of your review, post it on social media, tag me or the podcast, you can get a second bonus entry. So do that. The context ends on November 1st when we record episode 14, and we will release it on Thursday, November 3rd. Okay, Scott, where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter at Scott E. Weinberg. I tweet usually like, you know, my new articles and reviews. So yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, not so much on Facebook, but yeah, Twitter's my, my hangout. Great. And everybody make sure to check out his podcast 80s all over with Drew McQueenie. I've only listened to a couple episodes so far, but it's so interesting hearing you sort of walk through the hits of the year or the month, I should say. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We started in January of 1980 and then each episode is going to be the subsequent month. We're recording June of 1980 tomorrow. And, you know, Drew and I are approximately the same age. Uh, we were kids in the 1980s and we saw a lot of movies and then we've seen them with grown up eyes as well. So what we're trying to do is contrast what it was like back then with what we think of the films now, how well have they aged, or is this an obscure movie that might be worth digging up? Whatever we can do as, as curators of the 1980s American cinema landscape. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I, I've definitely enjoyed what I've heard so far. Thank I'm looking you. forward to following along. Thanks, man. No problem. May everybody make sure you listen to 80s all over. Now, for me personally, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you, Scott, one more time for having you on the show. It's been awesome. Very welcome. Thank you for the invite. Yes. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 13. I'm Chad Hopkins, this was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 14. Have fun and celebrate movies. <laughs> <laughs>